Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I am joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a podcaster. And uh, this fortnight, I watched Mona Lisa, as did Dan. Dan, how do you feel about Mona Lisa? What's your background with this film? Um, I probably saw Mona Lisa kind of mid-90s, so about <laughs> 14, 15. It was... I think the first time I watched it, I probably didn't appreciate it fully, although I love the ending. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it's uh, it's an interesting one because it is, it's both a kind of like gritty underbelly of British society movie, but it's also actually kind of a... a a study of like the human condition and a man reflecting on his place in the world. Um, and there's a lot more drama going on in it than you might expect from the synopsis from that, the world of film that it's normally considered part of. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. Um, Bob Hoskins says in the commentary that it's a tough story told through the eyes of an Irish poet. And I think that really keys into what you're saying there. I should say, before we go on, to anyone listening to this who's worried about spoilers, we are going to avoid spoilers. We're going to, you know, talk as loosely as we can. Because despite the reputation this film has, and obviously it was a, a big success in the UK, and um, Bob Hoskins was nominated for an Oscar, and um, it was celebrated in Cannes and all of that, I still think that not as many people have watched this as some of the other films that we cover. Would you say that's fair, Dan? Yeah, considering it, it would fall into a sort of a, the more mainstream end of the films we discuss. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have quite the same cult uh, following. I don't know no. why it is. I, I mean, I mean, again, maybe it is because it is less genre than than one might expect going into it. Yeah, it's 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 not exactly a. Um, a sort of a, a twist and intrigue picture, but I think it's worth us not really discussing the, the third act too much. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that it's a twist picture. Like, I definitely like. There's, there's a couple of big twists in there, don't you think? <laughs> there's. It's going to be very hard to talk about this obliquely. There's the the thing that Hoskins voices his surprise at on the pier, which uh-huh. is a, no, no, which is, no. Uh, well, okay, let's let's definitely not get into this because, because we will kind of veer into stuff. But I would say that for the average person watching this for the first time, for example, there is a film that I will tell you off mic that I thought about recommending in my recommendations. But I was like, no, that's too big a spoiler. That film, for anyone who hasn't seen Mona Lisa, if I say, oh, this film's like it, they'll be like, oh, okay, so that's what this film is. Oh, I wonder what that is. Um, yeah, it's a recent <laughs> one as well, actually. But anyway, I love this film. I absolutely love this film. Um, it, I feel like it's incredible from the opening moments. I think it starts kind of impossibly strong, like, you know, beautiful shots of of Bob Hoskins coming back into London, um, you know, coming out of prison and uh, that kind of first confrontation scene um which kind of reminds me of id do you remember id dan i love i love id yeah 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 you remember um, that, that that scene where they they're having a row and she's like throwing the clothes out the window and he's like yeah fuck you fuck you i fucking hate you and then it ends with i love you <laughs> it's so good um yeah. yes if you haven't watched <laughs> id um sweet arrowheads then it is 
kind of worth a watch. That and the, the firm, a um, couple of great uh, football hooligan films. But anyway, uh, back to Mona Lisa. Dan, we haven't done the plot yet. Would you mind doing your <laughs> usual magic and doing a bit of plot? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Bob Hoskins plays a petty criminal who's just got out of prison. His first port of call is to visit his estranged, maybe ex-wife, um, his partner from before he went away, um, more specifically to see his daughter, who he's never really seen as a young adult. Um, he is not welcomed by his uh, his ex-partner. Um, his second port of call is uh, to go and collect a debt from a, uh, a sort of a gangland character who he was involved with before he went away who had promised to take care of him. Um, that person is not there, but one of his sort of emissaries or underlings gives um, Hoskins a job driving. Uh, he gives him a pager. We run into that old trope of how the world has changed since he went away. Modern technology represented by a beeper. Um, and Hoskins starts uh, driving... Oh my goodness! What's the name? Actually, his name Kathy. Uh, Kathy Tyson, Tyson starts yeah. driving. Starts driving Kathy the fantastic Kathy Tyson around. Uh, and there's a really int- uh, she's a sex worker um, who's sort of out on her own, but sort of under the yoke of this sort of like this gangland malaise that's happening in the film. Um, and that it's the first sort of act of the film is really about their relationship, uh, and then he starts to sort of get involved in some some drama that she's got going on as the film yeah. progresses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good... Yeah, that is a good summation. And, it's an interesting... Uh, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go on, go on. Uh, it's an it's an interesting uh like mix he you know as a he's a he reads with his friend played by robbie coltrane they read novels together and talk about books uh he listens to classical music in his car he obviously thinks of himself as a relatively um sort of like cultured man and yet he obviously has insecurities about his position in society because when he's like shouting about how he can't live up to what this sex worker expects of him he's like i'm fucking cheap i'm 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 too cheap for you um he refers to the high-end hotels that she's um she's working in as shitholes and yet he is totally out of place in her world because she is going to these swanky hotels and he's not wearing the right clothes. Um, and so he's very at odds with the world that he finds himself in. He's sort of out of step with everything. And that gives space for Hoskins to give one of his broadest performances, broadest is the wrong word, that sounds, one of his most like wide performances because he covers a lot of insecurities rather than just that swagger that he has in some other films. He, uh, yeah, he, he manages to sort of play the real emotional spectrum in this one. I mean, it is, it's next level, this performance. Uh, he, he was nominated for an Oscar, as I said. Uh, and you, this wasn't a, a big film in the States. It was big in the UK, um, played for quite a long time. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't big in the States. So that is a testament to how unbelievable he is in this film. Uh, I mean, I've always loved Bob Hoskins, but this, for me, is his kind of... Uh, like you say, his most uh, wide-ranging performance and just the emotion that he communicates um, and the sort of... He actually talks on the commentary about um, some advice that Michael Caine gave him, um, which is that... And and this wasn't on this film, it's on a different film, the first film they did together. And uh, the advice was uh, to kind of remember that the camera can read your thoughts 
um, the film, you know, in a film, the camera can, can read your thoughts. So as long as you're thinking what the character's thinking, uh, the camera will pick up on that. And I really feel like he <laughs> took that advice as far as it could possibly go in this film because, you know, there are certain moments where um, the framing, you know, you just stay on Bob um, and, you know, other characters could kind of cut out of shot even. And it's almost like he's relaying the thought process of not just his character, but the person who's speaking to him as well. It's unreal, an unreal there's performance. A, um, there's an interview with Hoskins that Anchor Bay did uh, for their um, for their release of Long Good Friday, which Arrow then put on their disc that they packaged with Mona Lisa when they released them as a double bill. Um, in which he talks about the director of, of Longer Friday uh, wanting to hold on his face for a, a, a reaction shot that lasts a good minute and a half, two minutes. Mm. Um, and he, in that, he talks about how that was when he, he, he the first time he realised that it was true that the camera could read your mind because he didn't oh, think wow. he could do that. And it's such an incredible shot in the film. Uh, and then, so this, which is, you know, a few years later, it's Handmade Films, who obviously also bought and then released... Uh, Longer Friday so he's back with them this has got more of a sort of British drama kitchen sink kind of feel to it um, uh, someone said that this was uh, this film was born to some extent out of this push for for new like bright new artists bright new bright new um, bright new talent acting talent uh, to, to come up Kathy Tyson was, was part of that school and you can see that he's really drawing from those earlier performances. That there's there's so much going on behind the eyes for Bob in this film. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that that makes their dynamic and their chemistry so interesting. Um, it's the fact that Bob was obviously the experienced one, and um, Kathy Tyson had been kind of um, the casting director had taken Neil Jordan to a very small play that she was in because um, they think I think they had a tough time casting that character uh, but yeah they, they, they went through in this play and, and right this is the person and so this was her first film and so that dynamic between her and Bob I, I think gives it a very kind of unique energy and like you said before she is also amazing in this film um, oh she's incredible it's a very natural very real performance um, yeah it's really interesting that you say kind of kitchen sink I I I think it's kind of, um, I don't know, I think it's quite unique. Um, like, I don't get an Alan Clark feel from it, even though obviously David Leland, who wrote Made in Britain, he and works with Alan Clark a bit, uh, he wrote the first draft of this. Um, but apparently he wrote a, a, a much harder script, influenced by Hardcore, uh, which we've obviously mentioned on the show before. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but it was too hard. And um, I think Bob Hoskins didn't want to do that version. And Sean Connery was originally uh, the, the person Neil Jordan had in mind. Um, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, anyway, he, he, t he took the script. Uh, Neil Jordan took David Leland's script and um, kind of made it a more fairy tale story is the way that yeah. Neil Jordan puts it. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine what this would have been like with Connery uh, in Hopkins's role and with um, uh, uh, in Hoskins's role and Anthony Hopkins as the person they first approached for Michael Caine's role? I think it would be like a mixture of hardcore and the offence. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, and I think that would be a very tough watch. I mean, this, I mean, I'd like to see that film. Yeah, I mean, of course. Um, but I'm very glad that this one exists. Um, yeah, there is a mo. I had like you. I hadn't seen this for absolutely years. And there's a moment in this which I will not spell out because um, it's uh, it's a definite spoiler. It happens, you know, very very near the end. Um, but there's a question that, that's asked of Bob Hoskins, and there's a line he gives in reply, and there's a beat before he says it, and I found myself saying it out loud with him. Like that moment had seared itself it into, with you. In, into yeah. my subconscious, and it's his his delivery of this line. Fucking hell, it's so... Oh, I love this film. I love it so much. If there's anyone out there, there are definitely still discs available of this. Um, that's part of why we're doing it. Um, so please do pick up Mona Lisa. Um, you will not regret it. Especially, actually, Tim Coleman. If you're listening to this, Tim, uh, and if you haven't seen Mona Lisa, then uh, this is one for you, for sure. We were you were talking going back to the sort of the kitchen sinky thing. I think one of the things that's so good about the film, one of the things that works so well, is it sets itself a spectrum for everything it confronts. Yeah, and it shows you different points with on like within that in every aspect. So the sort of the gritty, grimy underbelly bits are all the more effective because of the light, gentle bits. But that actually is you know that's sort of exemplified and and uh, and mirrored everywhere else as well um when hoskins uh, is first uh confronting his ex-wife on the street uh and robert carlyle sort of comes and takes him away all of the people on the street have sort of come out to see what's going on and they're majoritively they're people of color and hoskins mm. says where did they come from and carlyle says well they live here and and that's played as a things have changed since you went to prison, but it's obviously a foreshadowing of his relationship with this woman of colour who's a sex worker who he's going to work with, and that that plays, that, that um, for want of a better term, that colours their relationship uh, early on and is almost a barrier for him. But he's never painted as someone who's uh, bigoted. He's just ignorant and he yeah. is willing to learn, and that's part of his journey. Whereas that scene on the bridge where... Uh, where she's recognised, that's the first time we see someone use a racial epithet uh, as a uh, as a sort of an aggressive, bigoted stance. Well, this is, uh, yeah, a hundred percent. You're totally right. And and it, it, just to correct something, it's um, Robbie Coltrane, not Carlisle. Just in oh, case. sorry, that's yeah. me misspeaking. Yes, it's yeah, it's Robbie Coltrane. Um, and and he's fucking wonderful um, in this. He's film. great. Like, it's his first film, and yeah, he's pure you know, charm and charisma as he always is. Um, but yeah, it is what I, one of the kind of wonderful things about um, Bob Hoskins character, George's arc is that it's exactly as you say, you have that early scene. He, he demonstrates that, that ignorance, um, but he doesn't take it and run with it. Like he's kind of Robbie Coltrane kind of changes the subject and he's happy to go with that subject being changed. And, also, that's a little kind of window into his personality and and why potentially he he's kind of led by the people that surround him. Um, but as you say, a turning point comes when a pimp kind of leans into the window and 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 like you say, uses a, a, a racial slur. And his reaction to that is so extreme and violent; it's almost like he's attacking himself 
because he's on this road to change. Um, you know, he, he sees the, the racist in himself reflected in this guy and really goes for him. So, like, wonderful moments like that throughout the film. You know, it, it's one of those scripts where, for me, not a single second is wasted. It's a, a, a beautiful journey um, that the film takes you on. And, yeah, I, I just think it's a really special film. I could, I could lose about three minutes in the middle. Oh, Yeah. What three all, minutes would you lose? All Genesis. Ah, oh, well, that's very interesting um, because <laughs> that puts you in the same boat as the exec producer on this film. Um, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he, um, he wanted to cut that montage because it was too hard. Um, like he found it too disturbing and oh no no I don't want to lose the montage I, I just want to lose the, the song well this is um, yes yeah, so that is the three minutes that he would cut and uh, yes like you Neil Jordan would also like to lose the song because that was the compromise that they came to he was allowed to keep that montage if they put a pop song over the top of it to take yeah. some of that edge off and um yeah, I, I mean, I don't mind it so much. Um, well, I didn't mind it until it was pointed out in the commentary, and now I don't think I'll ever be able to <laughs> um, <laughs> to forget it. Um, so, yeah, you're definitely right. But um, just to talk a little bit about the commentary briefly, um, it, there's not loads of extras on this disc um, for any Arrowhead who's thinking about picking it up, but what is here is fantastic three really great interviews one with neil jordan one with the producer and one with the writer and then you've got a wonderful commentary which is um neil jordan and bob hoskins but not together just to make that clear it's one of these ones where they've both sat down and recorded a full commentary and they've cut up the best bits and edited it together i do think it's a shame when when they do that because i always just think well i want the whole commentary from both please <laughs> um <laughs> but it does lead to a very kind of magnificent commentary that's all highlights and you know you've got neil jordan really reflecting on on what's playing out in front of him and giving some really lovely kind of technical details like lighting choices and how he works with actors and all sorts and then you've got hoskins being very kind of brutally honest as well so um yeah, the extras are, are really good on this. Yeah. Um, what else? Do we have anything else that we want to say about this film, Dan? No, I, I worry if I if I talk too much about it, I'm going to start talking about <laughs> reveals. Yeah. I have I have some questions uh, for you about your opinions, but they're all about big big things. So, right, we'll do we'll do this off. We'll, I'm sorry, precious Arrowhead, but if you subscribe to our Patreon, you will get to sit next to us. <laughs> <laughs> when we have these conversations uh no that's not true uh but yeah okay all right let, let's kind of wrap this up and move on to recommendations then dan what is your first recommendation based on mona lisa so i know this annoys you slightly sam but i'm going to recommend a tv thing Fucking hell. um but i think you'll forgive me it's a well, it's sort of three miniseries that were then packaged up as a single series um, I think it was the second one, maybe the first one, that I saw when I was quite young. Um, it's Band of Gold from 1995. Okay, you yeah. See, you, do you ever see Band of Gold? 
Uh, I did not know, but uh, so I, I was it's, probably watching films, Dan. But uh, no, I did hear about. It. It's oh very my well goodness. regarded. So it's 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 Kathy Tyson again. Yeah, yeah. it's a, about a, a group of sex workers who decide to uh, sort of push back against the the sort of the pimp dynamic uh, and set out on their own. It's unbelievably bleak and sad in places. It's an absolutely fantastic. Uh, show there is a full uh, DVD set of it in the UK from Network, which is still available. It's yeah, it's 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 grueling in places, but it's who, really really good. Who um, who was the director or who was the showrunner or, or writer? Well, this is or the thing. Was the I, big name? I was I was I was looking up some. Uh, I was sort of looking through it to try and work it out, and I can't find a single big name attached to it as a director. Right, it's just all um, performances. Yeah, like the the I think the the largest number of episodes directed by a single person was four, which is not very many considering how many episodes there were. So I think it's probably more about the writing than yeah. Well, than about the we tell you it's normally the writer, isn't it? So who who was the writer? Ah, oh, oh. right, I've got it. Created by Kay Meller. And written by Kay Meller. Um, so, yeah, as much as I kind of hate TV stuff, I am trying to watch more kind of um, great writers from telly and, and directors that have found their way in telly. So uh, that just interested me, basically, like who was behind it and whether I should add it to my list. And I will add it to my list because you've recommended it. Yeah, oh, yeah, you'll, you'll love it. You'll absolutely love it. Great. All right, well, uh, Band of Gold, that's on my list uh, of things to watch and on my list of things to recommend. It's an, an obvious one uh, and one you have seen, uh, my Arrowhead friends, and I know Dan's seen it, uh, Taxi Driver. Um, now, this is one of those recommendations I put in for context rather than uh, necessarily thinking that you guys haven't heard of Taxi Driver. Um, but I do think that there are some um, very strong connectives. And I think as good as De Niro is in Taxi Driver, that's how good I think Bob Hoskins is in Mona Lisa. So, um, yeah, there's stuff that I can't get into um, in, in regards to how they're connected but yep <laughs> uh, yeah um i i think that these will make a, a very very fine double bill if there's anyone alive who hasn't seen both of these films then my goodness um what an evening you have ahead of you um so yeah first recommendation taxi driver it's about a taxi driver that's my summation of the plot dan uh, like <laughs> like uh, like mona lisa they've both got yellow cars there you go. That's yes. the big connection. And and a couple of other things as well. But yeah, mainly the yellow cars. <laughs> Dan, what is your next recommendation? Uh, my next recommendation is a 1977 picture by Michael Apted called The Squeeze. Have you seen The Squeeze, Sam? I have not seen The Squeeze. Oh, you're in for a treat, Sam. You're going to love The Squeeze. So The Squeeze is, uh, I don't think it's got a Blu-ray release anywhere. It's got an American DVD. Uh, it's from the Warner Archive collection. It's a British sort of like similarly like underbelly kind of film um, starring Stacey Keach playing a Brit with an impeccable accent. It is Keach's like, oh my, he's such a fucking good actor. But Stacey Keach plays a uh, an ex-cop um, who is uh, who was fired for his alcoholism, who is estranged from his wife. She has gone on to remarry and have another family. She is kidnapped 
along with her daughter, the not Stacey Keach's daughter, but the daughter of her her new husband. And Stacey Keach gets involved in trying to track her and and the the young girl down. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been kidnapped to leverage her new husband into allowing these thugs to like helping them rob his company of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's about Keach. <laughs> so if Keach is Hoskins in this, then Coltrane is uh, is Freddie Star <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. It's really great. Um, well, that sounds but, insane. But yeah, he, he's basically just trying to keep a very drunk Stacey Keach on the rails uh, to try and uh, to try and get back this um, uh, th- this woman and th- this child. Oh, it's fantastic! You'll absolutely love it, Sam. <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it sounds very much up my street, and I, I love a bit of Stacey Keats. So, yeah, thank you. Great recommendations. Uh, my last one is, uh, well, it, I was thinking about doing True Romance, but I think that's a little bit too, like, I can't do two super mainstream, well-known films as my recommendation. So I'm going to do one that's, even though, Dan, you'll think this probably fits in the same category as those two, I think it's an infinitely lesser-seen film, and it is fucking amazing so please watch made in britain um, oh yes yeah like i say david leland wrote the initial script for this before um uh, neil jordan took some of the edge off um but uh, made in britain is basically all edge and features one of the defining performances of acting tim roth in made in britain is so good superhuman supernatural um yeah yeah just burns into the screen so even though there's not necessarily too many connectives outside of them you know both being set in the uk and uh containing fantastic acting um i do think that if you watch these two films back to back you will have uh, an experience you will always remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it is, I'd say it's more unrelentingly dark than Mona Lisa. Yeah, I'd say start with Made in Britain and then go on to Mona Lisa. Yeah, That's the yeah, order yeah, I, yeah, I guess. I'd do it in. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, what have you watched in the past couple of weeks? My, uh, my blo- the blockbuster in my hometown when Mm. I was young, had Made in Britain in the world cinema section. Oh. Uh, And I got in an argument with them about that. (laughs) I mean, was was that argument that Britain is in the world? No, their argument was that Blockbuster (laughs) is an American company. (laughs) And therefore, American films go in the non-world section. Wow. And world cinema should include British films. Fucking hell. Well, well, but then this was the same place that put a lot of films with the in the title under T. So, oh, good lord! Right, well, moving on from uh, the evils of blockbuster. Even though I do sort of miss you, blockbuster. We've all way. forgot. We've all sort of yeah. We've we're 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 at that stage in our relationship with blockbuster where we'll go back, even though they were abusive. <laughs> blockbuster were not good. No, I mean, I always, yeah, uh, the the sort of your local video shop was always preferable 
like yeah. um, they had better taste they you know made better recommendations and yeah and they rented me 18s when i was 12 (laughs) exactly well i was very lucky in that my sister worked at titles video yeah you said um yeah so i got i got loads of films i shouldn't have watched it was fantastic anyway speaking of films we shouldn't have watched what have you watched over the past couple of weeks (laughs) oh this definitely falls into that category uh (laughs) this is a so i um I put the brakes on buying anything when the shutdown happened because uh, I'm not making any films and therefore not making any money. But uh, there's been this nice sort of gentle trickle of things I pre-ordered or or paid for before this all happened that have still yeah. sort of come through every now and then. So I get my little, my occasional little Christmas presents. Great. Uh, one of them was some uh, some Mondo Macabro discs from the States, which included a 1975 film from Miguel Madrid called Killer of Dolls. You seen Killer of Dolls, Sam? I have not, no. It's a great title, um, though. It's, yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, it starts with the director talking to camera while pulling the head and limbs off a doll <laughs> and wow. explaining that the movie is a study of uh, split personality. And wow. then the movie masquerades uh, as a whodunit for about 10 minutes before just barreling into a sort of like slightly psycho-inspired movie about a guy who was brought up as a girl because his daughter, his mother lost a daughter. Uh, but then she, at one point she even says, but I stopped doing that when you were really young. I thought you wouldn't remember. <laughs> um, uh, and he sees women as mannequins uh, and and does a fair amount of dismembering as a result. There's some scenes in it that you would be forgiven for thinking maybe Lustig had seen before he did Maniac. It's the the next thing I'm going to say about it will make it sound like I think it's badly made. <laughs> and while it's not the most professionally made film, it is actually very competent. But there's this very peculiar thing where it seems that line by line, the emotional state of each character was decided by the roll of a dice. Oh, I, yes, I love it's, this kind of script writing. All, <laughs> all over the place and in Great. the best possible way. People go from like delirium to panic to fear to it's yeah to anger. It's it's wonderful. Oh, that sounds utterly fantastic. I will uh, I will search out when uh, when I also have more money. The the money that I have actually though before I get onto the the money that I have and what I've spent it on. Uh, you mentioned um, that you feel like this this director had seen Lustig's Maniac. Uh, other like, way around. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 But that, I mean, me getting that wrong is possibly a sign I shouldn't go off on this particular rant. But um, <laughs> did you see Elijah Wood's tweet? Now I love Elijah Wood. Like he's you know he's got a great company. He's very supportive of stuff. Um, but did you see his tweet about um, the remake of Night of the Hunter and saying, you know, you should leave this alone, it's a masterpiece? No, that? I didn't. Did, was there any more to it than that? No, he basically quote-tweeted the announcement and said... You and you know, feel that that's hypocritical because he is innately condemning Maniac as not a masterpiece yes! by having okayed it with his presence uh, and, and in, you know, in the remake. Yes, and this is the only place I can say this because obviously I would never say this on Twitter because I wouldn't want to upset Elijah Wood because, like I say, I do respect him. However, it did annoy me. Any possible insinuation that the original Maniac is not a masterpiece is deeply upsetting because that is the most sweat-soaked, creepiest, evilest kind of kind of slasher movie 
Um, so, you know, I probably wouldn't describe it as a slasher movie, more of a kind of serial killer movie. But anyway, oh, it just annoyed um, the, me. So I, I wanted I, to get that I, off my I, chest. I have a counterpoint for that. Oh. It may be that he is saying that there is no way anyone can do the kind of justice to Night of the Hunter with a remake that he managed to do to the acknowledged masterpiece of Maniac with his remake. I mean, if he's saying that, then that also upsets me because it's a glorified episode of Peep Show. But let's get off this... Uh... It's, it's a great episode of Peep Show. And one day, <laughs> I, I, know I will how much you love re-edit Maniac. the whole film with Peep Show dialogue instead. And, you know, I, I agree with him that... Obviously, I agree with him that Night of the Hunter is a, a masterpiece. And Arrow Academy have put out an astonishing Blu-ray of it. It's a wonderful, beautiful, perfect film. Please do buy it if you don't own it already. Um, and you're right, Dan, there is no way that anyone could kind of replicate that miracle of a film. Um, but... I don't have a problem with remakes of this sort no. because, you know, let's say Scorsese does a Cape Fear with it or whatever. Um, as long as that name gets out there for the mainstream, not the lucky bubble that we're in that already knows about Night of the Hunter. But, you know, this could bring Arrow's Blu-ray to a whole new audience. They might be like, oh, I want to see the original now. Oh, there's a Blu-ray of it. I'll buy that. Um, so, so, yeah, yeah. Um, Shut up, Elijah Wood, even though I love you. <laughs> the end. Right. <laughs> my recommendation. <laughs> um, yeah, what I've spent my money on, Dan, is unfortunately I have a, a sickness, a, a, an, an addiction, which is even though I'm sort of struggling a bit too at the moment, uh, I couldn't not buy uh, Clan of the White Lotus, um, which is the latest in 88 films, Shaw yeah. Brothers line. Um, I don't think they call it their Shaw Brothers line, but that's what it is. Um, and, yeah, I'm sure you know this film very well, Dan. Uh, it it's is a treat. Absol- it's I've, not seen, I've not picked up the disc. Yeah, well, the disc is beautiful. Yeah, really, really wonderful transfer. It's like watching it for the first time. Um, and, yeah, uh, if there's anyone out there that, that doesn't know this movie, basically there's a lot that... Quentin Tarantino, quote-unquote, borrowed from this film um, for his Kill Bill movies. Um, and, yeah, that's all I really say about it, other than it's yeah, got maybe the greatest villain in Shaw Brothers <laughs> history. Like, um, certainly up does there, he have certainly chicken top legs, five. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Yeah, no, um, I, I retract that, that, that statement. Um, but, yeah... <laughs> Uh, that is in Battle Wizards, by the way, Precious Arrowhead, in case you're wondering what that reference is. Uh, Dan, so what else have you watched in the past couple of weeks? I, I received a Blu-ray of a 1975 Luciano Acoli Politeschi picture called Killer Cop, uh, which is less bombast and more procedural uh, than some of those and know the worse for it. It's... Uh, a, a, um, uh, a narcotics police officer is in a hotel trying to track down uh, someone, he, a suspect, and a bomb goes off in the lobby of the hotel. Um, a sort of special investigator is brought in who refuses to answer to anyone uh, because he, you know, he, he, he does things his way and he doesn't want to 
anyone to tread on his toes or, or curb him. He doesn't want politics getting in the way of his investigation. And him and our and our lead kind of run into each other um, as the uh, as this sort of terrorist event unfolds. It's got loads of interesting twists and turns. And if you follow me on Twitter, you will have recently see, seen that it also has the world's worst made fried eggs <laughs> in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is uh, there's a, a German Blu-ray of it with English subtitles uh, or if you don't mind a dub then it is on Amazon Prime for free in the UK uh, in its dubbed form uh, yeah Killer Cop great wonderful um, my final recommendation for this fortnight is a film that uh, I received to review so I can't go too far into why I loved it so much because I feel like that would be unfair to the publication that I wrote the review for. Um, but I will recommend that you watch Baccarat. Uh Now, it's a Brazilian kind of action film. Um, and I think there was a trailer quite a while back and it kind of made it look a bit worthy, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it was not the film I was expecting. Um, I was asked to review it because uh, my uh, lovely review editor at SFX, Ian Berriman, said, I think this one would be up your street. And oh my God, it yes, it was so up my street. I want to live in it. Uh, it's an amazing <laughs> film. It's kind of uh, ostensibly about uh, a small town in Brazil, um, such a small town that it's not on the map. And basically, a, an armed gang arrive on the outskirts of this town. And it, it's kind of this futuristic Western. It's a science fiction movie. It's set in the future, though there's not loads in it that makes it feel futuristic. There's little details. It's kind of like Black Mirror in a way, in that it, it feels very real, but there are certain details in it that kind of do make it um, science fiction. Um, but yeah, it's it's brutally violent. Um, there's B movie references, but yeah, I, I'm not going to get into it too much because I am starting to dip into what I said in the review. Um, but all I'll say to you, precious Arrowhead, is you have to watch this film. It's streaming on movie at the moment. I'm nice. deeply, deeply hoping um, that they release it on Blu-ray as they did with Under the Silver Lake, another film that I love. Uh, and the Suspiria remake, uh, both of those came out on Blu-ray. So I'm hoping that Mubi do the right thing and get this out on Blu-ray as well. But um, yeah, I think it's on on Mubi now. So um, watch oh, awesome. it and, and and let me know what you think. Thank you. That's good. I'm not, excited not, about not, that. Not you, not, not you necessarily, Dan. I was talking to the Arrowheads, but you too. Well, I would no, never I tell you what what to watch. I, I know, know that you've got <laughs> a long list. Oh yeah, but but that's on, you have me at wantonly violent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's got the best um, performance from Udo Kier for a while as well. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, re it's really good. Anyway, uh, what else? Is that it? Uh, no, one little note. Uh, so we, uh, like, friend of the podcast, uh, Pat Kelman, lovely Pat, uh, Sam's can flatmate, and both of our long-term long, long friend, um, has his company, 606, put out a film we both recommended called System Crasher. Uh, a little while ago that had some festival screenings that was due for a theatrical release at the moment which obviously it can't have um so i have taken it upon myself to hijack the podcast briefly to let people know that it is now going to be on uh, curzon home cinema and mubi 
uh, rental and BFI player. Um, and actually, because Pat is lovely, they're doing a thing where if you order it via the website, 606distribution.co.uk, um, you can nominate a cinema that you love that might be suffering in these difficult times, and they will give 10% of your ticket purchase to the cinema. So, And they're doing that with all of their back catalogue as well. Uh, all of 606's back catalogue. All of 606's back catalogue, yes. Excellent, excellent. Well, there you go. And uh, Pat has great taste, so I'm sure... Uh, oh, my goodness, yeah. going to be gems yeah, yeah, they're in there all good. Sure. Uh, cool. Uh, did you have another recommendation, or is that it? Uh, I mean, I do have another recommendation, but I've done two. <laughs> let's hear Let's hear the next one. Uh, so, uh, Mark Blackman, other friend of the podcast, whose name you might hear again in a minute, um, lent me some discs. Uh, we did a, we were doing, doing swaps at the moment. Uh, we're doing social distancing swaps <laughs> on his porch. Uh, he lent me a French, uh, disc of a movie, although there's an English DVD of it called The Nest from 2002. It's Florent Emilio Siri is the director. Um, not done much else that I'd heard of. Um, it's basically a French assault on Precinct 13. I think there's maybe two dozen lines of dialogue in the whole film. It's definitely one for gunfight nerds. Uh, there are some some bits where things get a little confusing, but it's fucking cool all the way through. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, basically, a, a bunch of thieves end up in the same warehouse as a tactical unit who are transporting a human piece of shit who is trying to be busted out of an armoured security vehicle and they sort of have to band together to fight off this this task force of, of unpleasant and very heavily armed people. And a lot oh. of things explode. Yeah, it's really fun. I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's very, very French. Excellent. Well, uh, hopefully, you know, more social distancing swaps can happen. Uh, though I think it's a bit far for me to travel to borrow this from you, so... Uh, I will find another way to watch it. There's um, a DVD of it on eBay for £2 at the moment. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That is my other way of watching it. Um, though it's always good to support the distributor that put it out in the first place and not necessarily... I don't know if it's still in print. It might only be an eBay job. But, well, um, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Right, should we go into extra features? Extra features? Extra features, extra features, extra features. Dan, you extra have, features. as you subtly alluded to there extra features you have an extra feature um i do what <laughs> yeah, is extra it? feature <laughs> uh, i do uh, well so the long-term listeners may remember mark from our miracle mile episode uh he had a uh, a bit of a uh, an interaction with the director and was a long-standing uh enthusiast of that movie and came on to talk to us about his relationship with it and there is a similar situation between him and mona lisa so i sat down remotely for a chat with him about that so I'm uh, joined by Mark Blackman from Joker's Pack Production Company in London. Uh, those of you who listen to the podcast regularly might remember him from the Miracle Mile episode. Uh, Mark has uh, a little bit of an insight into some elements of Mona Lisa that I thought would be nice to share. Hello, Mark. Hi, how's it going? Um, doing all right. Thank you for thank you for joining us. So um, before we get into the the main bit of this, tell me uh, about your relationship to the movie. Yeah, just I mean, it's sort of always always been in sort of the top five since I've seen it uh, when I was about sort of 14 or so. I had the trailer on a bootleg of Highlander uh, that I was sort of obsessed with as a kid uh, that I sort of just watched over and over, the sort of the same one with that great voiceover and sort of very bizarre sort of uh, Peter Gabriel sounding soundtrack. But yeah, I sort of finally tracked it down, watched it and just... 
I think it's a, a perfect blend of sort of neo-noir and fairy tale uh, with just absolutely, I mean, obviously everyone always goes on about Bob Hoskins' performance, but rightly so. I just think it's the most beautifully complex, naive and uh, idealistic character. I just think it's a, a fascinating watch. You have a little bit of uh, proof of your love for this movie permanently on you, don't you? I do, I do. And my wife as well. We, She's absolutely uh, hook, line and sinker in love with it as well. And we, uh, imaginatively and cheaply, honeymooned in Brighton. Uh, and we decided to get matching, uh, well, not matching, uh, linking Mona Lisa tattoos. So the sunglasses uh, that they wear at the end on the pier. I've got his pair, she's got hers, um, which, yeah, do get noted that mine kind of look like Elton John's and hers look like the Lita's. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we don't care. It's a lovely little moment, um, you know, a lovely little shared little shared tattoo. Nice. So, um, so yeah, we, we mentioned this very briefly on the podcast, but there was a, an ill-fated um, remake talked about a, a few years back, but you actually managed to get your hands on a copy of the script, didn't you? I did, yes. Um, Larry Clark uh, directing when it was sort of announced uh, with Mickey Work and Eva Green playing George and Simone, which, to be fair, when they announced the remake, I think, you know, like everyone, it was kind of a horrifying prospect, like why would you sort of touch it? But with those three involved, it suddenly sort of became a m- much more of an interesting thing. I think Mickey Work had sort of just come off the wrestler around about that time, which, you know, I think it, it would have been a great sort of American portrayal of George he's you know he's an actor who genuinely has that emotive um vulnerability I think he's you know while still sort of maintaining a sort of tough guy out of time I think Eva Green would have been interesting she's a sort of actress who's very sort of terrifying in a lot of roles and I think she'd have brought brought an interesting quality and Larry Clark you know another day in uh, another day in paradise and bully I think are just absolutely two fantastic films especially bully I think it's one of one of the, the, the most sort of haunting, just absolutely fantastic. And this isn't, you know, that's the thing. It would have been him veering away from the sort of Ken Park kids, what's up rockers kind of territory and, you know, going much more into sort of neo-noir. And it was, and Handmade, Handmade were, were, were involved as well. It was their, obviously their property, but they, they handed it over to him for writing duties. So you, like, when you, when you read it, how did it feel compared to what you'd hoped it could be and what you'd feared it might be? What I hoped is there in that it is very much the film from beginning to end, exactly the plot, except the the sort of, for me, the negative stuff is they sort of, they take away so much of sort of the the, the wit and the charm and sort of the simplicity of the script. Because I mean, the, one of the things I love about uh, the original is just it moves at such a clip. It really hustles, but never feels rushed. But it's, you know, it doesn't have, you know, it's got a couple of dialogue heavy scenes but everything's very every line's a killer in it and this one's just very very chatty it begins with a very uh unnecessary flashback and intercutting series of flashbacks between george and simone prior to where the film starts in the original so you have sort of a 10 years earlier thing of how she becomes a hooker how he um goes to jail and his experiences in jail which sort of Um, shape who he is in this version of the script a little bit more he comes out it's all set in the Bronx Um, he comes out exactly the same setup you know wife and kid don't well wife doesn't want to know him he's trying to reconnect with his kid he uh, obviously reconnects with sort of um, uh, what would have been Kane's character and yeah it from there on it just sort of it kind of sort of falls apart they had this whole subplot of sort of smuggling in uh underage children which is is very icky it sort of expands on 
Um, well, actually, it's, none of it's really featured in the original. There's sort of a, an element of abuse and, and sort of violation going on in there of younger people, but this really triples down on it into kind of almost sort of a Andrew Kevin Walker-esque eight-millimeter horror show, which just... There's a couple of decisions it makes towards the end in terms of George's character that just don't sit right in terms of how you perceive him later on without without going into sort of huge spoilers about it. There's just a couple of things he does where you're like, that's really, that's icky. But it coming from Larry Clark, you kind of expect it. It's like he sort of couldn't really um, resist kind of diving that deep. And everything else is just sort of updated into sort of Americanisms, really. So, you know, instead of instead of the, the jag that he's got, it's a, a yellow checkered cab, a New York cab. Uh, gunplay features a lot more in it there's a couple more sort of action set pieces um but it just it really it really sort of betrays the charm and the wit of the original by it it makes george much more of a sledgehammer character he does go around sort of thumping people a lot more um and simone as a character she's much much less sympathetic as a character there's quite a lot of sort of feeling sorry for herself in it and also they kind of make the mistake of the distance that's kept between George and Simone in the original that has this sort of chivalrous unspoken respect between both of them in this version it's much more her using him and him being too dumb to realize it it doesn't have any of that uh hopefulness that he has um and it's yeah it's a real and it's it just it it's a slog like it's long it's it feels long I think that's the thing that I really notice more than anything else is where the original one like I say moves at such a pace this one just every scene's kind of weighed down twice as long uh, and it's trying to make commentary on stuff that he's noticing all the time like you know I think that's the one of the th- the key things about the original is George's simplicity uh, you know which I which I always sort of say you know is it naivety or is it an idealism. Uh, but he, you know, he comments on things with sort of one line of dialogue or two. In this, there's speeches, there's a lot of chat about animals between him and Thomas that just, they're trying to replicate the, you know, the whole murder mystery element, the book that they're obviously they're sharing. And they, they just go in these huge diatribes about like, you know, getting rid of rats. And, you know, if you get rid of one rat, a new one comes in. Um, you know, Kane's character has a huge speech about the, you know, the power of the internet, which even for when the script was written, uh, which I think is 2007, it feels dated for then. Um, and it just, it, it doesn't have the reward. It doesn't, you know, George doesn't sort of, doesn't go on a journey in the same way. You just feel like you're sort of following a blundering rock as opposed to a man who, you know, you, you really, your heart bleeds for. And I think it's, uh... A, a huge sort of yeah missed up but but you know it is it is the same story i think what's interesting it, it also feels like what i imagine david leland's original script which didn't have you know jordan's you know coming off the back of in the company of wolves and he's still very much in that sort of fancy mindset all the little references to babes in the wood and you know the prince uh you know the prince and the frog and all of this not you know it doesn't have any of that bizarre element that i think also just helps the original become sort of more innocent despite the fact it takes place in this corrupted world yeah it's um there's a there's a hopefulness in hoskins's portrayal in hoskins version where you get on board with him because he's got such like soft desires for a better world even if it's only within this little space and he asks himself in the original, why am I doing this so often? Because he is, he doesn't have the ability to introspect enough to see why he's making the decisions he's making. 
so is there is that kind of simplicity but i can imagine yeah replacing him with a blunt object <laughs> because i think there's an interview with hoskins uh i think it's on youtube where he sort of talked about when he wanted to do it the original script was much more i'm punching this guy i'm punching that guy and he's like you know in typical sort of hoskins fashion he's like look at me i can't go around smacking everybody like it's you know you can do it once or twice in a movie but it doesn't it doesn't work like that with me and i think this is that version it's you know rook's character you know he's a it becomes much more of a man on a mission by the end of it as well because this whole subplot this whole sort of um pedophile ring thing that they sort of really expand on it really sort of it get not it doesn't go into like taken territory or anything like that but it does take on a few extra beats that just don't ring true to the character you know he's and also it, i think the thing that the original is so good is he's so hopefully myopic like his only mission is to try and please simone and to try and sort of get her what she desires because it's the right thing to do and the good thing to do and and this new version by having this whole subplot just very much muddies the water and another subplot they incorporate is the whole um the the arab that she sleeps with in the original who's i think in this version referred to as just the arab there's a whole further subplot with him as well and i know i mentioned to you dan that you know i'd love to see an uh a novelized sequel to Mona Lisa where it's it's George and Thomas have to help that character out because all those tiny characters in the original they're only in sort of pockets tiny little slithers of scenes but you you get a real sense of who they are and if they're charming if they're evil if they're dodgy if they're noble and again this version by giving expanding all of that it just sort of takes away the mystery of this world that he sort of navigates through and it's a yeah, it's 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 you know warts and all. It's everything in the kitchen sink, and it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work. Uh, well, I guess it's uh, at this stage, even if the movie does get picked up for a remake, is almost feels inevitable with with all these classics. Uh, that that version's probably dead and gone now. I think so. I think so. It it just feels icky. I think that's the other thing as well. Like the original's icky, but like you know, like you said, it's that hopefulness that sort of running through George, you know, that that kind of really keeps the film afloat. It never feels like you're descending too much into sort of the darkness of the world that he's kind of going deeper into. But this yeah. one, this one just from the off, it's really, you know, it's just mean-spirited and that doesn't really sort of, it doesn't make for such a, a, a compelling journey, I don't think. I think that's the gamble you take whenever you sit down to watch a Larry Clark film is that it might just be gross. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, very. I mean, you know, Bully's one of those movies I always recommend to people and immediately go, should I have done that? But it is, you know, I think it's just phenomenal. And then, you know, you get Ken Park where you're just like, oh, this is... This is just horrible. <laughs> well, thank you for thank you for coming on and talking about this this lost script. And, um, yeah. Cool. I'll, I'll speak to you soon, I'm sure. Very thank good. you. Thank you. Bye fantastic there we go yeah great wonderful i love it when you do this dan thank you so much um for putting in the extra effort there that was uh, that was lovely uh i think that's it for this fortnight uh, we're not yes. sure what we're going to do next time so we're not going to announce that um but i, I, I all i'm going to say is once again please watch mona lisa if you haven't seen it please i bet yeah. you do. it's it's a wonderful film right yes social media dan who are you? Where are you? Uh, I am at 13fingerfx uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. Instagram's a bit quiet at the moment. Uh, Twitter is mostly pictures of my dogs. But, you know, there's other stuff. Other stuff, too. <laughs> yeah. See you online. The dogs are worth it. Yeah, you can find me at Sam Ashurst on Twitter. All one word, it's my name. 
And also, I've been doing uh, a video series called Obscurama for Channel Hex, and I'm putting the links onto Twitter. Um, but if you wanted to subscribe to Channel Hex, that would be lovely because uh, any demonstration of support for my passionate rantings about exploitation films, um, uh, yeah, any reward for that will mean that I can do more of them. And the first couple I've done... Uh, at the time of recording, uh, I've covered Fright from 1971, which I've mentioned on the podcast before. An amazing film. Seizure, which I don't think I've Ooh. mentioned on the podcast before, but the Oliver Stone's first movie. Um, I don't think I've seen that. Oh, wow. It is bonkers. So, uh, yeah. And, and the other thing about these videos uh, is that I go into less spoilers on those than I do here in a way. Um, I basically go up to the midpoint of analysis of these films and why I love them, and then I kind of stop because I don't want to stop people from experiencing these films for themselves for the first time. So, uh, yes, Obscure Rama, it's on YouTube, it's on my Twitter page. Uh, I do think that if you like me on this podcast, you will like me on this video series because it's basically the same thing. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but with pictures. Um, cool, all right. Anything more, Dan? Anything more to say? Any final statements? That's it. Stay safe out there, people. Please do. Um, yeah, please do. And just, you know, sit in your chair and watch films. Um, the whole world is like us, finally, Dan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, please do stay safe. Uh, we worry about you. Right, uh, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank and you. And we promise to be more professional next time. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.